You're listening to the AWC City Voice podcast, where we explore the issues that impact Washington's cities. I'm Sarah, the Digital Communications Specialist here at AWC, and today we're sitting down to talk about the most recent State of the Cities report, all about the evolving landscape of public safety and criminal justice services. Let's get into it. Burns, Strategic Content Analyst with the AWC Communications team. And we're sitting down to talk about the most recent AWC State of the Cities report, all about the evolving landscape of public safety and criminal justice services. Joining us are AWC lobbyist Lindsay Hewer and AWC Legislative Policy Analyst Catherine Walton. And all right, let's just start by having each of you introduce yourselves and your policy areas. Hi, everyone. I'm Lindsay Heuer. I'm a government relations advocate here with AWC, and my policy areas are public safety, criminal justice, behavioral health, cannabis, emergency management, and some other assorted general government areas. And I'll pass it over to Catherine. Thanks, Lindsay. I'm Catherine Walton. I'm a legislative policy analyst um, here at AWC. I work with Lindsay on all of the policy areas she mentioned, and I also do um, open government work. So we're here to talk about this really um, thorough and pretty interesting report on uh, public safety. And we know it's a major concern, both for city government and for city residents. Uh, We also know that some of the AWC legislative priorities are in this policy area. So I'm wondering if you can share just a snapshot of the big picture here, what some of the challenges that cities are facing when it comes to public safety and criminal justice, and then maybe what AWC's focus is moving into the legislative session. So we titled uh, the State of the Cities report Evolving Public Safety and Criminal Justice Services, um, really because I think we're seeing things change a lot in our state. Um, More people are moving to Washington. Um, What folks expect um, and want to see from their city governments, um, and specifically their public safety and criminal justice services, is also changing. Um, we're seeing an, uh, an increase in crime across our cities. Um, and cities are also being asked to provide um, services that they haven't traditionally provided, behavioral health services, crisis response, providing support to community members who are in behavioral health crises um, or a substance use crisis. Um, and as Lindsay kind of will go into, um, we're seeing a lot of major budgetary constraints as well at the same time. Um, and so you know, going through this report, it was really exciting to see that cities are really leaders in this space. Um, All of our 281 cities and towns in Washington are unique. They have different challenges and strengths, and they've all been um, really approaching this in really different ways and really exciting things to see. Yeah, that's really, that's great to hear. And and I know, Lindsay, from a policy perspective, um, it's important to share. So can you share a little bit about what's going on there? Absolutely. So as Catherine mentioned, you know, this is an issue that um, really has touched everybody in one way, shape, or form. Um, you know, whether it's you have a family member that has an addiction, whether you are a small business owner that's having trouble um, dealing with public safety issues and making sure that you can keep your business doors open, um, all of these sorts of issues are finding their way to City Hall. 
And so, you know, while each of our 281 cities are unique in the challenges they are specifically facing, there's some degree of public safety concern really across all of them. Um, And so when we were developing, when AWC was developing our policy priorities, public safety really emerged as a top consideration for everyone. And so when we're looking at this to say, how can we make sure that every single city has the tools that they need to address the very unique, specific situations in their community, you know, certainly funding became uh, an issue um, in terms of making sure that they would have the flexibility, the tools, the resources to address those problems on the ground. And really, you know, coupled with the funding consideration is also the fact that not only are costs rising just because of the, you know, nature of inflation and costs going up, but also, you know, as Catherine alluded to, there's more being demanded of law enforcement than ever before. The behavioral health situations that we're seeing in our communities are more dire more serious, more frequent than we have been seeing before. And law enforcement is the first responders, fire departments are the first responders, our cities are the first responders to a lot of these challenges. And not only do we need to have that first response, but we need to have a place where we can take them and treatment and things that we can provide for those people that are in those crises. So all together, looking at that and saying, how how can we address this? And critically, with a legislative priority lens, what can we ask the state to partner along with us? Because cities, as you can see in the report, um, cities are doing a lot of really innovative, really um, top-notch best practices in this area. So how can we reach out to the state, partner with the state in providing that public safety for all of our, you know, shared constituents? Um, And so, you know, that's really what drove our our legislative priorities here is looking at that funding challenge and how can we produce those tools um, for cities. Thank you for that, Lindsay. I'd like to go back to this funding piece because I think a lot of people don't really understand how public safety funding works and where the revenue comes from, where it channels to. What can you tell us about that? Um, Catherine, let's start with you. Most of a city's public safety budget comes out of that city's, their city's general fund, with nearly half of the city's operating budget on average being directed towards public safety and criminal justice services. But cities can also use other sources of revenue, um, including state shared revenues, grants, fines and fees, and local options like um, a criminal justice um, sales tax or public safety sales tax that Lindsay will go into a little bit more later um, to supplement those general fund dollars. Something that I found really interesting um, in working on this report um, was we did a deep dive on traffic tickets. So that is um, part of the fines and fees revenue. Um, and looking at um, the breakdown of um, just like a normal, a regular $145 traffic ticket, cities actually only receive um, about $48 of that $145 ticket, um, and the state receives um, the rest for a number of different services, including the judicial information system, um, trauma care account, traumatic brain injury account, um, and driver's licensing technology support. And then Lindsay... Would you like to talk a little bit also about where what the revenue sources are for cities and sort of how this all ties into AWC's legislative policies this year? Sure. So as Catherine mentioned, you know, the, the general fund within a city is really the um, 
you know, with rare exception in terms of some other grants that a city may receive, the general fund is where all of the funding is coming from for public safety and criminal justice. And so we need additional tools to be able to provide those resources within the city's general fund because the cities cannot simply just decide they're going to go out and raise revenue. Um, they have to do it within the, the parameters of state law. There has to be a tool within the RCWs to allow them to raise that revenue. And so uh, one of the things that we're looking at is the public safety sales tax. This is currently allowed um, up to three-tenths of one percent, um, and we are looking at making that be um, allowed to be imposed by councilmanic action, and so that cities could more quickly and easily, um, you know, if they determine that that's what's the right fit for their community, to say we want to get these resources immediately out into our community um, and begin this revenue collection. And for some cities, you know, we're really talking about a substantial amount of additional resources that could come in that really can make a difference. Um, so this won't be a tool for every city. Um, this is certainly not going to be something where we're, you know, advocating to say we just want additional money. This is allowing the tool for the cities to say, do we need this in our community? Is this the right thing that we need to do? Will this um, change the landscape in a positive way? And, you know, it's, it's going to be a tax and something that they're going to have to look at holistically. But we want to make sure that the state can give each individual city the tool to say, yes, we want to, no, not right now, um, and have the revenue that they need to be able to provide those services. Because, you know, what one of the things that this is tying into, of course, is the workforce challenges, because not only are the costs just increasing because costs are increasing, but we're really seeing some tremendous workforce um, challenges with law enforcement. So both on the recruitment side and the retention side. Um, and so to be able to provide additional resources to address those workforce shortage issues. So with all of that revenue information in mind um, and it being a challenging landscape for cities. According to information that you're providing in the report, these are areas that are already problematic for cities and that are expected to become even more challenging. Um, what can you tell us about that? With the three-tenths sales tax and with bringing in that additional revenue um, and bringing in the additional FTEs, you know, that's really going to help address some of our workforce challenges because there are a number of, you know, areas of the economy where they're seeing workforce issues. Law enforcement is not unique in this at all. However, we're seeing really an exacerbated challenge with law enforcement, given what's going on nationally and the question of what is community policing and what do we want our law enforcement to look like. And then you couple that with the fact that Washington historically has a low per capita average of the number of law enforcement officers per person in the state. And so while everybody has seen challenges with this nationwide, we're facing a kind of, you know, extraordinary challenge. And so being able to provide cities with a tool to address the revenue needed to look at those workforce issues um, is a really critical component of this legislative priority. Yeah, and that's a great segue to to kind of pivot into the idea of retention and recruitment, because those are areas that you talk about quite a bit in the report for good reason. Can each of you sort of take a little bit um, of time to talk about those uh, specific recruitment, retention um, areas in terms of public safety and what the challenges are? Sure. So, you know, in Washington, we are, you know, part of that national picture in terms of, you know, since 2020 and, um, you know, national incidents that have really caused people to question, you know, what what is policing and what do we want our police to look like and what do we, um, you know, want the relationship between our community and our police. And that's something we dive into in the report to say, 
you know, what is the changing narrative on the role of policing in our communities? And so there's that piece coming into it, you know, the perceptions of law enforcement, the COVID pandemic itself, um, you know, resulting in a number of retirements, number of job changes, people leaving the workforce altogether. Law enforcement was certainly not exempt from all of those challenges, um, and though those apply to a lot of different workforce areas. And so, you know, all of these particular things that we saw on a national basis, we also have seen in Washington um, that have really created a, a, you know, a real challenge with law enforcement re- recruitment and retention. But I don't know, Catherine, if you want to talk about the Washington specific stuff. Yeah. So um, kind of as we touched on, Washington state is facing historic vacancies in law enforcement um, and cities across the state are facing this. Um, they're facing challenges with hiring and maintaining police officers. Um, and with um, anticipating a whole wave of retirements coming up. Um, So nearly 40% of current law enforcement officers are either eligible for retirement um, or will become eligible in the next few years. 70% of cities who responded to our city conditions survey said they foresaw hiring new officers as a major challenge. That's 70%. And then an an additional 41% of cities anticipate um, that these retirements or resignations that I mentioned will impact their public safety staffing. Across the state, um, our police officer to population ratio has decreased and wasn't very high compared to national averages to begin with. So in the year 2000, we had 1.7 police officers for every 1,000 residents. In 2022, we only had 1.3 police officers. When you think about how national averages have been pretty consistently 2.3 to 2.4 officers um, per 1,000 residents, those are fairly low numbers. And these have real world, real world impacts. Um, we see, um, unfortunately, longer response times to 911 calls because there simply are not enough officers on staff um, to respond in a timely manner. Yeah, and I know that that crosses right into some of the legislative work that we're doing this year um, and some of the efforts we're making to give um, police departments and criminal justice areas support and funding. So, Lindsay, do you want to tell us a little bit more about how that is um that's working this year. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. It's, um, you know, driving, you know, really this one of our top priorities this year is law enforcement recruitment retention. And that's not just the public safety sales tax and those additional resources. Part of that will also be looking at the 1%, the property tax cap, um, which has been around for about 20 years now. And, you know, since the initiative was passed, and that's really been a restriction on the kind of um, the amount of general fund revenue that cities are able to to raise. And, um, you know, particularly for those jurisdictions that really rely on their property tax as their revenue source. And so this would raise the cap up to 3% um, balance based upon population growth and inflation. And so it would not require that a city go up to 3%. It would just simply allow that flexibility for cities to raise that additional revenue if that's something that their elected officials determine is the appropriate course of action. And in addition to those um, fiscal tools at the local level, we're also going to be working with um, 
the legislature to expand the basic law enforcement academy or the BALEA classes to ensure that there's adequate capacity. This is something that the Criminal Justice Training Commission, the CJTC, has been working really hard over the last couple of years to address the backlog. Um, and they're opening up some regional academies. One opened up uh, in Pasco this year. We're anticipating two more uh, to open up, one in Skagit County and one in Clark County um, to open up in early 2024. And we want to continue to see that action move forward. And so we're going to be asking for additional capacity for two additional BLEA classes um, to happen in Spokane, in a second facility in Spokane. Um, and that will ensure that we can um, provide that regional support to get the right people into the law enforcement positions who maybe otherwise couldn't travel to Burien um, to spend you know, an extended amount of time away from their family for the, the BALEA classes. And so as we continue to expand this and say we're, we're doing good work, the state, um, in expanding these capacity and this training, but we need to continue to push that further and make sure that as we recruit people that they can get in, get trained, and then get working as quickly as possible. Right. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, all right, at this time when we're struggling to recruit and retain law enforcement, we're also seeing increases in demand on law enforcement, as you've mentioned, um, in several different you know, uh, regards. Um, and law enforcement is first responders and behavioral health crises. So let's talk a little bit about how cities are working on that particular issue. I can take that. Um, so cities are not traditionally direct behavioral health service providers. Um, but law enforcement officers are increasingly being dispatched to behavioral mental health and substance use crises. A crisis of this type can be um, really tragic and dangerous for both the individuals involved, their families, um, community members who may be nearby or who are involved, um, and, and the community in general. Um, best practice, national best practice, says that people in crisis need someone to talk to, they need someone to respond, um, and they need somewhere to go. But in communities across the state, extreme disparities exist. Cities are often on the front line trying to address the problems created by the lack of available services and are asked to resolve issues during a crisis. Many communities don't have local options to divert people into drug treatment or the nearest service center is often located many miles away from the community. This is also an area where we're seeing um, cities really innovate in cool and, and different ways. We're seeing cities across the state really take very different approaches um, to this. Um, in our latest survey, 25% of cities said that they have an arrest and jail alternatives program. These look very different in different law enforcement departments. Um, we've heard them also be called, or there's a, a type of program called law enforcement assisted diversion. We've got a case study um, from Whatcom County. It's a partnership with Bellingham in our report. 39% of cities pair a behavioral health or mental health co-responder with, with law enforcement when appropriate. Um, co-response re refers to uh, a really diverse set of programs, um, but it, but sort of at its base, um, it's a behavioral health personnel embedded within or responding alongside law enforcement or emergency management services personnel. This can be a ride-along uh, where a behavioral health clinician responds with an officer. It can be um, a behavioral health personnel, like a social worker, um, or something similar who's embedded in a department, um, or it can be a team that follows up with a person in crisis after um, they've been contacted by a first responder. 19% um, of cities who responded to our survey said they have fire-based co-response. So this is 
um, can look similar, but it, it's located within a fire department. So um, we have a case study from Pulsbo, the, their fire cares program um, as part of a mobile integrated health response unit. Um, and then 16% of cities operate a mobile crisis response, um, and those teams will often um, respond without, with or without a law enforcement officer. Great. And um, I know that there are a lot of interactions, or excuse me, a lot of intersections here with um, the AWC legislative priorities. Lindsay, if you want to take that on that on a little bit and share some of those ideas with us. Yeah, so one of the great nexus between this report and our legislative priorities is the report highlights um, the challenges that cities are facing and the ways that they are being innovative and as Catherine said, you know using best practices and you know finding the solution that fits their community and the the way that we're pairing that with our legislative priorities is to say how can the state come alongside that good work that's being done and not dictate a particular solution that may not fit every community but how does the state provide the tools, the resources, the fiscal flexibility for cities to continue to grow, in doing this good work that they're doing. And so uh, we talked a little bit about the public safety sales tax. That's certainly something that cities can use that revenue um, for these co-responder units. We talked about the the 1% property tax cap. Again, that's general fund revenue that could be used for these programs. Um, the additional BALEA classes is providing additional law enforcement resources. Um, but the other one I want to highlight that's on our priority list is the additional grants for co-responders. And so um, AWC administers a state grant uh, for $2 million a year. We received the appropriation. Um, but we know that there, the need far exceeds that $2 million per year. So we're going to be going in in fiscal year um, 2024 to be asking for um, an additional $2 million in the grant program for that um, for the next up coming fiscal year. We know that really grant funding is great. It's a good seed, but we also know that ongoing funding is going to be the the major driver for this. And um, so these conversations that we're having for the grant program will really set up that 2025 priority to have some ongoing resources at the state level to help support these co-responder and grant programs. Um, and, you know, we, as we can see from the case studies where these programs are able to take holds, the results are really outstanding. Yeah, and I'm going to pick back up on uh, what you were saying about this being still relatively new across the state, but your report shares a variety of case studies um, from s- different cities that are trying different formats and different ways of this sort of cold responder program. Um, information about court systems it also shares and all kinds of resources. Are there things you'd like to call particular attention to that are in the report that we haven't covered yet? I'll, I'll let Catherine talk about a couple that are really great, but just overarching, you know, I think that I highly encourage everybody to, to really look at the case studies in the report um, because there are so many different ways to go about this, mm-hmm. um, whether you have mental health professionals going out individually, whether you have them pa- paired with law enforcement, you have them paired with, um, with fire departments, um, and then also how you work within your general community, working with your service providers, because there is not a, a statewide, you know, one-stop shop for behavioral health. We're, we're investing into community-based treatment. And so working with the local treatment providers, working with, um, you know, law enforcement-assisted diversion, therapeutic courts, um, all of these kind of components that cities have come in and said, we're not historically involved in the behavioral health world, but we have to do something about this. We have to 
help. And so here's what we're going to try. Um, and the report highlights a number of really fantastic um, success stories that cities have had to, to help in this space. So Catherine, I don't know if you want to talk about a couple of those. Yeah. Um, I was just looking through our report and I was like, oh, they're all so good. Um, I think um, one I want to highlight just because we have um, some early data and I think that that's really exciting um, is um, the Regional Crisis Response Agency um, or RACER, um, Bothell, Kenmore, Kirkland, Lake Forest Park, and Shoreline worked together um, to create this Regional Crisis Response Agency, um, which provides crisis de-escalation, intervention, and navigation to the system of care. Um, and I, I and it's really exciting to see um, some of their they're a really new agency, um, but to see some of their their numbers. So um, they've shown a sixty seven percent reduction in jail bookings a 60% reduction in crisis service events, and a 4% reduction in emergency department visits um, for folks who they have interacted with through their agency. Now, that's really exciting. These are folks in our community who are getting connection to services and help that they need and making the community overall safer. Um, there's, all, there's, a, there's a bunch of really great programs. We've got the Whatcom County um, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program, um, which is a partnership with the city of Bellingham. Um, the Paulsbo Co-Responder Program, which is housed um, in their fire department. Um, and then we also have two um, therapeutic courts, the Olympia Municipal Community Court and the Lakewood, Lakewood Veterans Treatment Court. These are really amazing programs um, that are really making a difference in our communities um, and in folks' lives. I love hearing about these programs where our cities are collaborating together and partnering together and leveraging one another and their resources. It's just very, very cool to hear about. Um, and this report is really an amazing piece of work. And I think our members are going to find it very helpful to support their own city policy goals. Um, where can they find it? Where can they get a copy? Yeah. Well, thanks for saying all that, Gabby. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, uh, if folks want to check out our report, which I would encourage you to do, um, you can go to our website, wascities.com. Dot org um, and look for the State of the Cities report. The report is called The Communities We Serve, Evolving Public Safety and Criminal Justice Services. That's great. Thank you. And that's all we have time for today, but I want to thank you both for joining me. And thank you as always to the listeners. Um, Lindsay, before we sign off, can you let our members know how they can stay involved and support your work and the work that AWC is doing this year up at the Capitol? Absolutely. So, you know, first and foremost, be in touch with your legislators. Let them know about your legislative priorities, um, about AWC's priorities, about the budget challenges that you're facing in 2024. It really helps to, to strengthen our arguments to, to bring in those additional resources. I also uh, highly recommend reading the weekly legislative bulletin that we send out. That's really where all of the information um, that you need to know for the week uh, will come out. And we, um, every Friday, have a city action call. It's a Zoom meeting where you can meet with all four of the lobbyists, hear about what happened in the past week and what we expect to happen in the upcoming week. And then also encourage you to save the date for February 7th and 8th. That's our City Action Days conference. Um, it'll be held in Lacey, and it's where all of our city officials can come and gather and learn about what's happening in Olympia during the legislative session and um, how best to get involved. And you can meet with your legislators and meet with other city colleagues. And that's it for the City Voice podcast. The City Voice podcast is a production of AWC, where our mission is to serve our members through advocacy, education, and services. As always, thanks for listening.